And our passage today is going to be James chapter 2. James 2. And our scripture reading is going to be James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James 2, 14 through 26. And I'll be reading in the, um, the ESV. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, reads this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the reading of God's word. And so let's pray. God, we um, come now to your word and we, we want to uh, hear and we want to understand and we want to do. We want to uh, take to heart what we explored here in, earlier in James's letter that we don't want to be hearers only of the word, but to be doers as well. We don't want to look into a mirror and then walk away and forget what we look like. We want to hear what your word says. And we want to take it to heart and we want to do it. And that goes for this passage today, Lord God, that you would, that you would speak to us through this. And encourage us and exhort us and challenge us in ways that we need to be. So that we can be faithful followers of you. And growing disciples of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, we ask that you would. In these moments, as we reflect on your word, you would give us clarity of, of thought. And understanding. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. 
And all God's people said, amen and amen. So here we are in the middle of uh, the book of James and uh, getting towards the middle of the book of James. And James has just been warning uh, his congregation of, about the dangers of, of favoritism and showing favoritism. And now he leads us to this little expose here uh, on this main topic of faith and works or faith without works. And so as James has been a kind of addressing issues with his original audience and what he wanted this, these dispersed tribes to, uh, to be faithful in how they lived wherever they, God has driven them, um, he's challenging them in several ways. He's challenging them to not show favoritism when they're gathering together. And he wants to challenge them that uh, leading on from that discussion about not showing favoritism, but, but fulfilling the, the, the law... He wants to encourage them to have faith that works, a faith that works. And so this is the, the issue that he's addressing in these verses, faith and works. And in particular, the main issue that he's addressing is profession without practice, a profession of faith that's lacking in practice. And you see this in a couple of key verses uh, that he makes throughout this, this argument. Notice that in verse 14. In particular, he starts, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, there's the profession part, but does not have works. This is the practice part. Okay, so he begins with these two questions. What good is it if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? And then he asks the second question that gets kind of the heart of this um, and how important this is. Can, can that faith save him? So he's concerned here with, with a profession of faith that's lacking practice or kind of fancier terms to say it. He's, he's concerned here about an orthodoxy, which is right thinking or right doctrine and orthopraxy or having orthodoxy and, and not having orthopraxy, right practice, not living that out. And so James leaves us no, no doubt about the theme of this paragraph. He announces it several times in verse 14. Notice what he says again in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Notice also verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And notice again verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, it appears on, on first glance that he's making a distinction here between faith and works. And, and he, he is. He is contrasting faith and works. And I, per, perhaps he's addressing um, not just a hypothetical, but perhaps something that he has heard when he's addressing somebody who says, someone will say to me, but you have faith and I have works. And he contrasts that with saying, well, just show me. So it seems like it's a distinction between faith and works. But I think on closer examination, as we look through this passage, we will see that these two are not like opposites. You can either have faith or you can have works. Rather, he's he's talking about a distinction between um, a true faith and a fake faith or um, between a, a counterfeit faith 
that is profession without practice and a true and genuine faith that is faith with practice, a profession with practice. And so notice in verses 15 through 16, he's kind of addressing this this scenario with a kind of a um, perhaps a hypothetical scenario. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, okay, this is real, real situation. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body. What good is that? So I think he's countering here between a fake and counterfeit faith on one side and then a true and genuine and authentic faith on the other side. There's real needs and those real needs are met with um, a profession, but no deeds to back them up. And so real needs need real deeds. They need real acts of service to address them. So this is what James is addressing here in this whole passage. A faith without works is a fake faith. A faith without works doesn't work. A genuine faith, on the other hand, is a saving faith that reveals itself in its works. So the audience here that he's writing to is saying they have faith but does not have any works to show for that faith. And James's point is that this is then, that's a, a, a worthless kind of faith. What good is it? The term there is also, you might see in other translations, what profit is this? How is this beneficial to you or to anyone else if you have a faith that doesn't manifest itself in your deeds? So faith without works just doesn't work. A faith without works isn't even truly faith. And so James is answering what he anticipates as a rebuttal to his to his question. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And to this, James responds, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he gives a kind of an interesting example to start with here to show, to illustrate for his readers and for us the difference between a profession, a profession that's lacking practice and a profession that has practice. Notice what he says in verse 19. Here's the first example. And there's three, three examples that he gives in this passage. But here's the, here's the first one. The example number one is demons. Verse 19. After having said to them, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He says this, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe. And the implication here is that even the demons believe that. And yet they shudder. It's a really interesting thing that James is, is saying here. He's talking about belief is not merely a cognitive thing. It's not merely mental agreement to a certain set of facts or propositions. Rather, it's 
agreement to a certain set of propositions and then acting in accordance with or on the basis of those things. Demons believe that God exists. Okay, so the generic faith that's, you know, believing that God exists, is that sufficient? James says, even demons believe. And they shudder. What's even interesting here is that he, he actually says, and, it's, and sometimes it'd be easy to miss, but you can kind of see it in your, uh, if you have some cross-reference notes in your Bible. Notice it says, you believe that God is one. And this is an allusion to the, uh, probably the, one of the most important and greatest commandments of the entire Old Testament for, um, for the Jewish faith. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, right? It's a, the Shema. It's a prayer that Jews... Devout Jews, they pray multiple times a day. It's one of the first things that they would teach their children. You know, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or it could be translated, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. Or the Lord alone is our God. It's interesting that James uses that. You believe that God is one. Like he's citing this main creedal statement for the Old Testament. The one that Jesus himself had said when asked, which is the greatest commandment of all the, uh, the Old Testament? He cites this one. Because the very next verse is what says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he was echoing this main, the main creedal statement in, in Judaism. And he's saying, you guys believe that. Good. But demons believe that too. It's an interesting case that he is making there. We saw this in Mark's gospel, right? As Jesus was going out and performing his miracles and doing healings and casting demons out. And some of the demons would address Jesus. And they said, what do you want from us? We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. They make profession. They know facts about who God is. James is saying here that the biblical idea of faith, let me say this, it always includes that. Biblical faith is um, always includes agreeing with the revealed propositions of truth that God has given in the scripture. It's never less than that. But James is saying it's more than that. One scholar said it this way. Faith that is merely intellectual or a faith that claims to believe but is bereft of any action is no better than the faith of demons. The quote, faith of demons. So James has kind of laid out the groundwork here. And then he gives a couple of, uh, of cases here. Two other illustrations to, to kind of illustrate for us. And I, and I love both of these. And so we'll look at two people. Abraham and Rahab. Abraham and Rahab. If you're very familiar with the Bible and you're familiar with the Old Testament stories. Just love what James is doing here. He's just kind of going back here. Okay, you're the dispersed tribes of Israel all throughout. You believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And he still has to remind them of their Sunday school lessons. Father Abraham had many sons. So he, de he deals with Abraham first, which would seem like that, that's a, kind of a no-brainer. That's the first place to go. The second one, 
Uh, that's a little bit of a head scratcher, but we'll get to that. So he does with the first one. Let's look at the first one. And here he's talking about that we are justified by a faith that works. A true faith works. And the first exemplar he gives of this, the first example of this kind of saving faith that doesn't just believe the propositions about God, but acts on them. The first one is the patriarch, Abraham, verses 21 through 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You're familiar with, many of you should be familiar with the story, but if you're not, let's turn back and look at that. Genesis chapter 22. This is um, kind of deep into the life of Abraham. We're introduced to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. And the story of his life, um, as recorded in Scripture, extends for uh, well over a dozen chapters, well into um, through the bulk of, of Genesis, the latter half of Genesis. And so just so you know, let's see if we could kind of get a survey of, of Abraham's life. And he's referred to as the father of faith. We're introduced to him in chapter 12, where God calls Abraham to leave his country. To leave his kindred, to leave his father's house, to make his way to a land that he is going to show him. And God leads him to the promised land. And he promises him on several occasions. You're, you're going to, you and your descendants are going to inherit this land. And I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to have a great number of people. But what's interesting is at this point, he was, was childless. He and his wife, Sarah, had not had any children. And that becomes kind of a, a plot line here. Um, Abraham attempts to kind of take things into his, his own hands and um, has a, well, and Sarah is, plays a part in this too, to um, offer his concubine to, to try and uh, father some other children from Hagar. And the Lord says, but that's not the son of the promise. I promised you, I will give you descendants. Might be many, many years between God promises something and he delivers on it. So you have to live and act in faith in the meantime. And so eventually Abraham does get a son of the promise and they name him Isaac. They bear him in old age. And so they name him Laughter because of Sarah's response when she found out that she was in old age going to give birth to the son Isaac. So here you have Abraham and Isaac. And in chapter 22 of Genesis, you have these words given to the, the word of the Lord comes to Abraham. And he says these things. Look at what it says in chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. Now notice what it says here, that God was 
He was testing Abraham. Kind of a theme in James's letter, isn't it? And he makes this request. He goes, I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering. Many people are really kind of upset with what God is requesting here. But I think it's helpful to keep in mind what it says that God is, is testing is testing Abraham. Verse four, and on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, like his servants who were with him, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Many commentators have noticed that this coming back again to you is including Isaac in here. Maybe a revelation of Abraham has some confidence something is going to happen. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And behold, he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Pretty observant kid. Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself. The lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham, he, he's being tested here. He knows what God has been requesting of him to do. And yet we have a couple of little bits of evidence that suggests, God, you're going to pull something out. You're going to do something here. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham was following what God had asked all the way to this point. And then verse 11, okay, if you could kind of picture this dramatic scene, Abraham is there with the knife, waiting for God to kind of step in, waiting for God to do, when is God going to step in and act? And then verse 12, or verse 11, and the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For, I, for now I know that you fear God, seeing as you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. What an amazing story, right? And the words that God said to him, now I know that you fear, you fear me. Now I know that you have not withheld your son, your only son, he stresses again, from me. So verse 14, so Abraham called that name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. 
continues on, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Amazing, isn't it? The writer of Hebrews has an interesting little take on what's happening here. Is that um, that Abraham apparently, even at this time, believed in the resurrection. Because he believed that if God was off asking me to sacrifice my son... And he promised me that son, and that through that son I was going to, that all of the nations would be blessed, that I would have many descendants from him, that he must be going, he must be performing a miracle of raising him from the dead. That's what the writer of Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter eleven, the great faith chapter. James's point here is to point out that Abraham walked in faith. He didn't just believe the propositions that God said. He acted on them. He, his faith was validated in, in showing that he held nothing back from God. And James even quotes a line that's actually before the episode that we just read in chapter 22. He quotes a line from Genesis chapter 15... Verse 6, when God makes this covenant with Abraham. So, so keep in mind what's happening here. Notice in chapter 15, verse 3, if you're still there. Where Abraham kind of makes a complaint to him. Okay, I've been living for these years. You haven't given me a son. So this is even before Isaac was born. He says, behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household, this, this guy Eliezer of Damascus, he's going to end up being my heir. He's going to end up taking all of my uh, my possessions and inherit all of those things. And then notice in verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, this Eliezer of Damascus, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward the heavens and number the stars. If you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham, notice what it says in verse six. And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord and he, that's the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Believing in the Lord and acting on it. And this is what Abraham has done. That verse is quoted three times in the New Testament as examples of that we are justified by faith in Christ. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. You, uh, and read these. In all of those arguments, he's arguing the case that you are justified by trusting in faith in the Lord. Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3, and James uses it here. So James is using it with a slightly different angle. He's saying, you're, when you believe, you're going to act on it. Like Abraham believed that God would give him a son. And it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Abraham believed that all of the promises of all of these descendants were going to come through that son. And Abraham believed it. And so that even if the Lord God was going to ask him to sacrifice his son, Abraham believed, was going through with it, believing even if he needs to raise him from the dead and perform the greatest miracle of all, I believe he could do it. Abraham was counted. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that's a faith that works. A faith that works. That's the first illustration. The first example uh, or the first kind of exemplar of faith that we're given. The first example was the demons, but that's not an example for us to follow. The latter two are ones that are examples to follow. The first one's the patriarch Abraham. The second one is the prostitute Rahab. Verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. All he does is just kind of brings this up, but I think it might be helpful for us to look back at this passage. This is from the book of Joshua, chapter 2. So if you would turn there, the book of Joshua, chapter 2. It's a very fascinating and interesting little argument that um, James is doing here. So, like I said, the first one kind of makes sense. The patriarch Abraham, he, occur, he occurs in, you know, um, over a dozen chapters in Genesis, he becomes kind of the main figure um, by which the Jewish people were identified. They were, they were children of Abraham or sons of Abraham, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob, from whom we have the 12 tribes of Israel, his name getting changed from Jacob to Israel. But it all starts with Abraham. So that one kind of makes sense. This other one, the next one, is a really interesting little, little turn here. He goes from the patriarch now to the prostitute, Rahab. And we are introduced to Rahab in um, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun. Now remember, this is Moses had died. Joshua was going to be Moses' successor. Um, Joshua was going to be the one who was going to lead God's people into the land that God had promised to Abraham. And now he had brought them out of Egypt. He brought them and had given them the Ten Commandments. Uh, they wandered around the wilderness. Moses had died. Joshua takes over and they're going to cross the Jordan River. But before they do, this event happens. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly into Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out this land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you and entered your house, for they have come to search out all of the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where um, they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. So, so it kind of tells the story of the whole thing that happened. And then he kind of backs up and he says, okay, but let me show you kind of what was, what was happening here that I just kind of glanced over. But she had taken them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on their way to the Jordan. That's the king's men. As far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. 
But the men lay down. She came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of God has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came before um, before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to see, to Sihon and Og, whom uh, you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Okay, let me stop there for a moment. Uh, some some people are kind of critical about what is about to take place in the in Jericho with God's people going into the, to Jericho and and destroying these people. Um, and they're often termed as kind of like the innocent ones. They didn't know they didn't know anything about God. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't know about the Israelite people. Rahab's story here um, kind of re- directly refutes that. She said, we've, we've heard the reports. We've, we've heard how the Lord your God has been with you this whole time. And, and we were fearful because of you. So they knew. They knew what was about to happen. But what's interesting is what she says and what she does. Notice carefully her profession and her practice. So in the midst of saying these things... And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. This is in verse 11. There was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord. Notice it's all capitals there. She's using the covenant name of God, Yahweh, for the Lord, your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And if you would write next to that, do it in a little ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. Or if you want to write down a note. Put a cross reference here. Put Deuteronomy chapter four. Because just a couple of weeks prior to this. Moses is delivering a message to the people of Israel. As they are getting ready to cross over into the Jordan. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I have my wrong Bible, so I don't have my right footnotes on here. What Rahab says is the exact words that Moses had given to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Anyone can find that in verse, verse 39. Yes, there it is. Thank you. This is Moses saying these words. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them. This is a really kind of a key moment in Deuteronomy. 
and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving uh, out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as at this day. Know therefore today and lay it on your hearts that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. That phrase only occurs two places in the Old Testament. The words of Moses telling the Israelites to put this, impress this on your hearts, that the Lord God is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. And then he says, and there is no other. Rahab has ended up quoting the very words of Moses just spoken of just days before. I don't know if she'd heard this or if this is some sort of revelation to her or if she just happened to be acknowledging her profession of her faith that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is the one true God. Because she says, for the Lord, your God, your God is the God in heaven above and the, uh, the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And he, she just kind of leaves it there. It's kind of a little ellipsis for there is no other. I just kind of as I'm thinking through and visualizing this, this moment here, when she says these words, I imagine these two spies going, what do we do now? We're supposed to spy this out. We're supposed to come back and destroy this entire city. We're supposed to not leave anything left. What do we do? This woman has made a profession of faith in the one true God. And so she continues, verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to the death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The story goes on to say that when they do come back, they do end up sparing her. They tell her to hang this red cord out of the window so that we will know. And they do spare her life. Notice her profession and her practice. She believed that the Lord, their God, was the God above and on the earth beneath. And then she goes, and so I will spare you. I know who you are. I'm not going to reveal your identity to to the king. If you would just deal mercifully and kindly with my family. And she does. And they do. And she lives And as a matter of fact, she and her family get absorbed into Israel's story. She ends up being a great, great grandmother of King David. She ends up being in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. She appears. She marries, has children and one of her great, 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 great grandchildren through, according to Matthew's genealogy, is Jesus, according to the flesh. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Why? Because her profession, her practice matched her profession. And she had nothing to go for her, by the way. 
She wasn't a patriarch. She was a prostitute. She was a, a pagan prostitute woman. And her name is now recorded as an example of faith that acts in the scriptures. And so that's... And it, James only spends one verse on this, but it's really powerful. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Rahab has, had a profession of faith and then practiced it. She had orthodoxy. She understood who God was and then acted accordingly. Orthopraxy. Justified by an authentic Genuine true faith. So here's here's the application for all of us. And you see this in verses 20, 24, 26. And this is James's main argument. Faith apart from works is useless. 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And this here, even this last example shows you that he's not contrasting faith and works. He's talking about a faith that works. He's not saying, oh, body and spirit, you need to have one or the other. No, you need to have a body that has the spirit. If you don't, if you have a body, no spirit, then it's dead. So here's here's the conclusion. James does not deny that faith saves. Okay, because this is the big big debate here in this passage and what's said elsewhere in um, Paul's letters that we are justified by faith alone. And James appears to be saying uh, that that is not the case. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He almost says it explicitly. But when we've looked at the whole picture, we've understood what he's talking about. He's talking about a faith that isn't really a faith. He's talking about a faith that doesn't have any action. That kind of faith doesn't save, he says. So James doesn't deny that faith saves. He just rejects the, the idea or this notion that a particular kind of faith saves. That a faith that doesn't produce any works or any change. Or a faith that's just merely um, agreeing to a set of facts and then not living according to it. Or mere intellectual assent to a bunch of truths. James says that's not, that's not saving faith. Saving faith, on the, on the other hand, is a faith that acts. It acts on the entire person. Here's a quote. It includes the will and the emotions such that those who believe in Jesus give themselves to him. In other words, faith works. Genuine faith works. True faith acts. So it's not faith works. We're not justified by our works. We're not justified by faith plus works. We're not justified by a fake faith that's profession without practice and no works. We're justified by a genuine faith and that genuine faith produces works. And that's James's point here. So a couple of things for us to keep in mind. One, it's important. We need to believe the right things. How we act does flow from what we believe. You go from knowledge to faith 
to character to action. And so believing the wrong things will lead you to act on the wrong things. So it's important. We need to believe correct things. That's first. James is not denying that faith doesn't have any role here. He's not saying that at all. But we should believe the right things. Do you believe the right things? Do you believe the right things about God? Do you hold firm to what God has said in his word and revealed about who he is and who his son is and who the Holy Spirit is and who you are and how you need to respond to him? Do you believe the right things? That's the first thing. Second thing. Do those beliefs form the foundation of what you do? Do those beliefs about God, his sovereignty, his omniscience, all-knowing, his being everywhere present, do you act in accordance with those things? Does, do those beliefs actually form the foundation of how you behave? So one, do you believe the right things? Two, are, are, you, are your beliefs the foundation of how you live? And number three, are you living in accordance then with what you believe? So here's a couple of questions. If you really believe what you believe, are those beliefs just ancillary? Are, are they ancillary or are they foundational? If not, then am, exi- examine yourself and ask, why don't I live in accordance with what I believe? And then ask God, God, help me to live what I believe. May we have a faith that works. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again. When we look at your entire word and how you've put this whole book together for our benefit, for our, for our instruction. We thank you for this, this instance of James writing to a group of people who are outcasts, driven away from Jerusalem, yet claim faith in Christ and how James had to challenge them. God, remind us that we are still strangers and aliens in this world, that we are sojourners, that we're outcasts, and we claim faith in you. And yet, God, we want to heed the words that James had for his audience, that you would, you would use that word. We know that you are using that word to speak to us. And so, God, we want to be challenged here to examine our lives. God, thank you that your word is exposing that in us. May we examine ourselves and hear your correction. Help us to not make our faith merely intellectual assent. That it's not just a a fascinating way to think, but that this becomes the foundation of who we are and how we act. And God, we're going to need your assistance in that. We know that you, you provide. 
what you ask us to offer. In the same way that you provided the offering that you had asked of Abraham, that you are asking us to live in accordance with what we believe. And we, we ask, we know you're going to provide us with the means to do that. So help us by your spirit, God, to have a faith that works. And it's in Christ's mighty name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Friends, will you stand? We'll do our closing uh, benediction. Reminder that the offering box is outside. If you have any questions, I'd love to, uh, to talk with you. And if you have any prayer re requests, I'd love to, uh, to hear them. And, uh, so here's our, our benediction as we close and send you on. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.